Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening and welcome to this Bible study. Scripture, the Bible, is a book that was written with a specific context around it. Taken out of its context, you can make Scripture say anything you want. It would be as if you had a Martian anthropologist who showed up on Earth, walked around in the forest, and found a book. Nothing else. He took the book back home and studied it to understand how human function. And that book is Alice in Wonderland. And he made a presentation at a Martian symposium on human anthropology and declared quite forcefully that on Earth you have rabbits who are late with watches and you have little girls who fall through holes and you have queens of hearts who tend to be pretty upset about a variety of things. That's his picture of humans. That's how we tend to read scripture. And we can be offended, we can be upset at God. If you've ever read the book of Numbers, for instance, or Exodus, or the book of Kings, how many of you read the Book of Kings? Yeah, I'm dealing with a Catholic audience, I can tell. Uh, it's no laughing matter, by the way. You will be asked to give account at your personal judgment of how much you know of Scripture. Just to let you know. So, you're doing the right thing by coming to this Bible study. But you need to do more. You need to really know Scripture. It is the face of Christ. You can't stand before the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and tell him, I've ignored you all my life. I didn't listen to what you had to tell me. Be it as it may, in the, in the book of Kings, and even before that in Exodus, God instructs Moses that at one point they would have to go to a certain tribe and kill everybody. And he meant everybody. Men, women, children. And they would put every, all of those bodies in a big heap and burn the whole thing. It's in the Bible. I'm not making that up. When you encounter a text like this, if you have only modern context around you, your own context in which you live, you'd go, what's up with God? What's wrong with God? How many of you know why Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. What did Moses do that prevented him from entering the, 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 the promised land? I don't want you to tell me. I just want you to raise your hand if you know. Very good. For those of you who have never read it, let me tell you what he did. God instructed Moses to speak to a rock so that water may come out and, drink may, and provide and allow the thirsty Israelites to drink. And instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock twice with, a, with, a, with his, it wasn't a cane, it's actually staff, right? From which we get the bishop's staff, but that's another story. That's what he did. He, he stuck the rock twice with a staff. Let me ask you a question. If you were a rock and somebody 
stuck you with a wooden staff, would you feel it? I mean, did Moses offend the rock? God told Moses, because you've done that, you will not enter the promised land. What's up with God? Don't you think it's a little disproportionate? I mean, okay, he didn't do exactly what God told him, but still water came through and they got, they got the drink. Why hitting the rock with a wooden staff would provoke God's anger to the point where Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land? If you read the text, you can't arrive that meaning outright. You need the context. The Catholic Church teaches us that there are fourfold senses to Scripture. Four ways in which we understand Scripture. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of understanding that, of integrating it into your reading of Scripture. You've got to become adept at seeing the four senses, or otherwise you will constantly, constantly be faced with the difficulty of reading it. There are four senses. For those of you who have the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 101 to 115. 101 to 115. We're going to go through them tonight. What I want to do, give you now a bigger picture, I delved a little bit into some of those difficulties to explain to you my approach. I basically had two ways of dealing with Revelation. Way number one, I could read one verse, pick a word like trumpet, spend an hour understanding where trumpet comes from because it's very important, and then bounce all over scripture and come back. And then we proceed to the next verse. That approach, called the top-down approach, where you start with Revelation and you move back into Scripture, has a definite problem associated with it. You'd get dizzy pretty quickly, flipping over between all the books. Instead, what I decided to do is to do the bottom-up approach. We're going to start by first understanding the four senses of Scripture, and then we're going to build up on that. We're going to put in our pocket tools that will prove extremely helpful when we actually get to the book itself. Don't think that you're going to be wasting your time between now until we get to Revelation. I assure you, I assure you that if you apply yourself even a little bit, the graces you will receive will transform your life. That's how generous the Lord is with us when we pay attention to his book. What are the four senses of Scripture? The first sense is the literal sense. The literal sense. How is the literal sense defined? Because there is a lot of confusion around that. Briefly put, that's paragraph 116 from the Catechism, the literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture. Hmm. Wow. The meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture. What does that really mean? How can we understand that a little bit better? Well, thankfully, we have St. Thomas Aquinas. The literal sense is what was intended by the human author as he penned down those words. Let's, give, let's, take, some, let's, let, let's take some examples. For instance, in the book of Hosea, Chapter 11, verse 1, there's a very famous verse which is quoted by Matthew. And that is, Out of Egypt I called my son. That is in the book of Hosea. And Hosea was reminding the Israelites that out of Egypt God called his son. What did Hosea have in mind when he wrote that? He had in mind Israel. He had in mind Israel. Since I'm on the topic of Israel, since I see a number of new faces here, I need to, to elaborate a little bit on that. As an example of confusion today, we typically consider Israel, Jews, and Hebrews to be the same thing. We think of Israelites, Jews, and Hebrews to be the same thing. 
So there are three words interchangeable. But that is far from biblical truth. And these words are so important that if you were to read the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, where they occur all the time, and the Gospel of St. John, where they play a very important role, and not understand the differences between the three, you miss the literal meaning. Picture, imagine, if you will, that you are now back 2,000 years at the time of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be an Israelite? What does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be a Hebrew? If you notice, in all of the New Testament, even except for the letter of Hebrew to the Hebrews, the word Hebrew is scarcely used. Israel, Israel and Jews is used all the time. Israel, first and foremost, means one person. That's Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Jacob's name became Israel. All right? The Israelites, therefore, are what? They are the descendants of Jacob. They are the sons of the twelve sons of Israel, Jacob. Who are the Hebrews? So you see the bent. The proper understanding of these words is family related. Alright? So who are the Hebrews? If the Israelites are the son of Israel, the Hebrews are the sons of somebody. You understand? And that somebody had better have a name related to Hebrews. Israel ain't it. No connection there. You get that? They are actually the sons of the great, 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 great grandfather of Abraham. That guy's name was Eber. So all the descendants of Eber are Hebrews. That includes the Arabs, by the way. They may not like it, but that's how it is. Because the Arabs come through Ishmael, who is the son of Abraham, who therefore is related to Eber. You see, it's family feud. It's always been family feud. Never been but family feud. Okay? Now, who are the Jews, therefore? The same principle applies. The Jews are the son of somebody whose name has something to do with Jew. Can you think of such somebody? Judah. The fourth son of Israel. So all Jews are Israelites. Not all Israelites are Jews. It's very important. And all of them are Hebrews, but not all Hebrews are Israelites, and not all Hebrews are Jews. Guess what? 2,000 years ago, you would know that. It would be as clear to you as the difference between somebody from California and somebody from Alabama. You can tell by the accent. And why is that important? Why does it matter? That is actually a great deal. You see, God made a promise, and we're going to get into this right after the four senses of Scripture, but I just want to give you an outline. He made a promise to Adam. He then renewed that promise with Noah. He renewed it with Abraham. He renewed it again with Moses. And he did it the fifth time with David. What was the promise? The promise was that he would establish what? An everlasting kingdom. And what was that kingdom called? You'd find it in Matthew all over the place. It's the kingdom of who? Israel. Kingdom of Israel. Now some of you, or maybe a good portion of you may be coming from the Middle East, where today we, we know we have quite a bit of problems with Israel. So am I here standing before you making political statements that apply to today's situation in the Middle East? Hardly. You've got to keep that completely separate. I'm not talking about politics here. I'm not advocating this or that point. I'm helping you understand how Scripture was read 2,000 years ago, what the literal sense is. And we have to make it our own. Very important. Jesus repeated at least 
30 times, if not more, in the Gospel of Matthew, I'm here to restore the kingdom of Israel. If you knew a little bit more about the context, you would know that Isaiah, in his prophecy, stated the following. Where the deportation of the kingdom of Israel started, there the restoration will begin. At the time of Jesus, Israel is split into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, the remaining ten tribes. And they did not talk to each other at all. They were like black ants and red ants. And how could God come and reunite the two kingdoms was impossible for anybody, including the angels, to figure out. But that's, that's the immediate context in which Jesus Christ was preaching. And so, you know from the Gospel of Matthew, which city did Jesus make his own? Start the letter C. Capernaum. And why? Because he liked fish. Well, yeah, the Lord liked fish, but it was, it was a more important reason. Because Capernaum is at the juncture of two, the territory of two tribes, Zebulon and Naphtali. Ah, tribes. You're going to learn those before we end this Bible study. You know them by heart. Zebulon and Naphtali. Why is that important? Because when the deportation started in about 800 B.C., the first two tribes to be taken into exile are Zebulon and Naphtali. Where the deportation started, there the restoration begins. You see, once you have that context, once you understand the history behind it, once you realize the meaning of the words as they were intended, Scripture comes alive. You start to peer into Scripture and understand it. So the literal sense, therefore, is the meaning intended by the author. As I said, back to Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea is reminding his contemporaries that God called Israel, his son, out of Egypt. That's the literal meaning. But we know now that that meaning, those same words, had another meaning underneath it. Right? It was a hidden one. And that meaning is spiritual. Because it is not intended directly by the author. It is intended by the divine author, the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? That out of Egypt, God called his divine son, Jesus. When he brought it back out of Egypt. And literally, this is what happened. Because the angel appeared to Joseph and said, Pack up and go back. Literal spiritual. You'll find that across scripture. And that's why often a good representation of scripture is an icon. Because it's multidimensional. It's a window on heaven. But you have to have a contemplative mind to enter into scripture. Otherwise scripture remains closed. You have to contemplate. Now here's another startling thing I want, to re- want to point out to you before we continue. Scripture was never meant to be understood. That's a false misconception we have. We think, okay, I got Scripture. Now all I need is the idiot's guide to Scripture. And I'm set. I read Scripture back and forth a couple of times. I read the guide and I know Scripture. You may well achieve that, but you know what? You missed the boat. Scripture is not about us understanding it the way you understand a mathematical problem. Scripture is about us knowing Jesus Christ. And, just as importantly, about us knowing ourselves. Scripture reveals man to man. The purpose of Scripture has never been for us to understand it. Only God understands Scripture. But it is meant to reveal us to ourselves. And that is one of the most important sense of Scripture. It's a spiritual sense. The spiritual sense is broken into three. And I'm talking about the moral sense. 
You're all familiar with it. It's the open scripture, read a passage, what does it mean to me today? And that's a valid reading for scripture. But it's fraught with dangers. Why? Because most of the time, the moral reading of scripture is done by us in separation of the literal sense. We don't really understand what was intended by the text, but we read the text and we come up with a meaning that sort of makes sense and we just go with it. I've met quite a few people who are their own popes. The Holy Spirit told me. Or you'd ask them, where is it written that the Holy Spirit will give us infallibility in interpreting Scripture? I'm going to get upset at you. But it was never promised that we would have infallibility. What we were promised was that we will be, we will receive wisdom once we interpret Scripture for our situation today in accord with the literal sense and the mind of the church. Never away from the mind of the church. For instance, you read Scripture and it says, Ah, see, Jesus here told me today that it's okay for me to get a divorce and get remarried. Well, you may have been told so, but it's certainly not Jesus, because Jesus will never contradict his bride, because his bride is speaking his word, and God doesn't contradict himself. The church says, no divorce, and you will never hear the Holy Spirit telling you, divorce. It may be your own innate desire, it may be a wishful thinking, it may be an inspiration by, by the evil one. Who knows? But it's certainly not the mind of the church. Therefore, it can't be the mind of Christ. That's how a proper Catholic interpretation works. We are not the source of the truth. We don't fabricate truth. We don't make it up. And any interpretation, any teaching you hear as Catholics must be must be proven by what the church teaches. And hence, as Catholic, you are, you are responsible. It's your duty to know what the church teaches in matters of moral and theology. It is a duty. And we are all called to know the mind of the church. Because it is as Catholics, we believe that this is the truth. So, the literal sense, as I said, is very important. We're going to be working on that. Then, the spiritual sense. The first one I just mentioned to you is the easiest, and it is the moral sense. What is Scripture telling me today? Let's take an example. Let's assume that you're reading a passage from the Gospel of St. John, a very known passage, the woman at the well. Jesus meets the woman at the well. You're familiar with that passage? Very briefly then, Jesus is tired. He shows up at the well at, at noon time. And the woman is coming to take water out of the well. And there's a conversation between the two of them. Jesus says, woman, give me some water to drink. And she says, whoa, wait a minute. You're asking me to give you water? Don't you know who I am? Jesus said, but if you knew who I was, you would be asking me to give you water. And she says, Oh, well, I perceive that you're a prophet. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who built this well? And Jesus makes himself known to her. I will give you the living water, and you will never be thirsty again. And then she says, Well, give me that water. Laying aside the literal meaning, Morally, what does that say to each one of us? Well, there's a certain number of principles that we can see. Morally. Number one, how do you meet Jesus? Where do you meet him? You don't have to go to the top of a mountain. You don't have to go to Tibet. You don't have to isolate yourself. You meet the Lord amidst your daily activities. This woman was coming to get Water. Nothing extraordinary. She met him in the midst of her activities. The Lord came to her. He found her. He finds us. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Therefore, 
every ordinary thing you and I do is truly extraordinary. Because every ordinary thing we do, if done for the glory of God, is an encounter with Jesus Christ. doesn't matter whether you are a cook, whether you clean homes, whether you're a CIO, whether you're a president. doesn't matter. If what you're doing affects the whole world or one person, none of that matters. Because in every one of those activities, you're meeting Jesus Christ. Number two, encountering Christ requires what? It requires attention, you listen, and the use of your reason. She talked to him, she asked him questions, she inquired based on what she knew. I know a number of people, and I understand what I, and I, and I empathize with them, who are thirsty for supernatural things. They want apparitions, they want miracles, they want extraordinary things to happen to them. I want to point out to you that when we go that route, wishing for the extraordinary thing, we're really, in a sense, slapping God in the face. You know why? Because God did an extraordinary thing for us. He gave us reason. He gave us the ability to use words, which is what He did to create the world. That's why we're called, we are created in His image and likeness, because we can reason. It's a great gift from God that makes us like Him. And we have to encounter God with our reason. Therefore, we have to have our reason properly formed. We have to work at it. It requires work. We can't expect God just to come to us or lay on the beach doing nothing. We're going to work at it. But then progressively, we come to know Jesus Christ and discover that He is the source of living water. That's a very brief meditation on the moral sense. And what I recommend for you to try is the following. Try to make a habit of the following. Take 15 minutes of your day and don't tell me you can't find 15 minutes or else you would deserve a heavenly spanking. Take 15 minutes of your day. Open up scripture. Gospels. Start with the Gospels because they're easier to deal with. Or the Psalms. Open up scripture. Read for five minutes. And close the book and then use that process just described to you. Use your reason. Let's take an example. Imagine the Annunciation. Just read the Annunciation. Gabriel came to Mary, told her what he told her. She replied and he's gone. That'll take you five minutes to read. Now, put it down. Close your eyes. Shut your cell phone, your pager, your, fo your television, your radio, everything. No noise. It has to be quiet. And then picture yourself. Picture yourself right there in the room when the angel appeared. See, meditation is not about thinking about lofty things. It's actually thinking about very small things. What was Mary doing when the angel appeared to her? Was she sitting? Was she standing? What did the angel do? Did he kneel? Did he stand? And picture the dialogue between the two of them. And then let the Holy Spirit guide you into the mystery of our faith. That is a worthwhile thing to do. Make a habit out of it. Become contemplative. It's 15 minutes. If you tell me you don't have time, then think about the following. If I were to tell you that next Sunday there will be $10 million right here before the altar, and it's first come, first serve, how many of you would be late to Mass? Don't tell me you don't have time. Literal, moral. Any questions about those two senses before we proceed to the next two? What I want to do tonight is an overview of the four senses, and then next week we'll delve more into each one of them. I could just do one hour and I'm done, but I know full well that if I don't spend four lectures on this, you will soon forget what I talked about. I need to drill it through to make sure that you understand how the four senses work. And so just as I'm making an effort, I would really recommend that 
You take notes. There won't be a test. Or maybe there should be a test. I don't know. There won't be a test, but I recommend you take notes because it will help you at the very least better remember and better understand what those four senses are. Any questions so far on the literal and the moral? Okay. So the literal is what was intended by the author, the human author, when he was writing the text in his context in which he lived, historically, theologically, morally. The moral sense is a spiritual sense where the Holy Spirit speaks to us in our own personal circumstance. And the important link is that we can't have one sense contradicting the other. We can't have the moral sense taking us one direction that is not fitting with the literal sense. Make sense? Yes? All right. The two other senses of, of, of Scripture, the two other spiritual senses, the allegorical sense, allegorical sense, we can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus, the crossing of the Red Sea is a sign or type of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism. The allegorical sense from allegory is the sense that points to Christ. All right? So we read a passage, the crossing of the Red Sea, literally what happened? The, the, the Red Sea opened up, Israelites, not the Jews, the Israelites crossed and then when the Egyptians tried to do the same thing, the water submerged them and they drowned. So, allegorically now, what is then the crossing of the Red Sea? What is the Red Sea? What happened? Think about it. The sea is closed, then it's opened, right? Moses opened the sea with his staff with the wood of his staff. He plunged it in the water and it opened up. Right? What is that staff representing then? The cross. What is the sea? The sea is very important. What does the sea represent? No. The Gentile kingdom. Always. The sea is the Gentile kingdom. Those who are opposed to Israel. Israel is always represented by the land. And the sea is the Gentile kingdom. So Moses plants the staff in the sea and the sea opens up. Now what is that representative of? The sea being the Gentile kingdom represents what? Sin. What did sin do? Sin closed the gates of heaven, the promised land. The cross conquers sin and opens up the gate of the promised land. You see how the literal sense match up to the allegorical sense? I am not forcing this into the text. I'm not yanking the meaning of the literal sense in strange ways. I am just reading the words, but now seeing them in a spiritual way based on the revelation of Jesus Christ. The sea then is transformed just as the water of baptism is transformed. Why do you think we use water for baptism? Why did Jesus Christ told us to baptize with water? Water represents life. Absolutely. It's true. But then if water represents life, why do we have to exercise the water? If you notice the rite of baptism, water is being exercised. There's an exorcism going on here. Why do we do that? Because you see, water, though represents life, is also tinted. It is broken nature. It is being exercised. Meaning what? Meaning that Christ, by his death and resurrection, has conquered sin and take, takes with that which was under the dominion of the enemy and makes it into a source of of new life for us. By the way, I said that word exorcism. A quick nota bene about exorcism. You know what is more powerful than an exorcism? Confession. 
confession is way more powerful than any exorcism you can think of. It's not as, as, it's not as flashy and it's not as spectacular, but it's way more powerful. Why? Why is it more powerful? What's an exorcism? It's a sacramental. It's a sacramental. Just like a rosary is a sacramental. Whereas, ex whereas confession is what? Sacrament. Way more powerful. You talk to any exorcist, if you can get a, son, if you get a guy to go to confession, he'd do it in an instant. Because he knows the problem will be taken care of. But he can't. He has to resort to a lower approach, not a higher one. See how we often have things in reverse in our systems of value? One thing you'll notice about my Bible study, I tend to wander. The allegorical sense then is very important. It is the sense that points us to Christ. Now where do we get that from? Well, Christ himself used it. Where? Remember in the Gospel of John when Nicodemus came to see him in the middle of the night? Remember this whole conversation about being born again? During Nicodemus, by the way, Nicodemus is a Greek word, nikaodemos, and that means crusher of democracy. That's what this guy is called. We're not completely sure it was his real name. It could be a, a title given to him. But that's what he represented. And that guy comes to Christ in the night. And the night is very important in John. Light and darkness. And during that conversation, Jesus says this. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that whomever looks at him will receive eternal life. All right, serpent being lifted up. Remember that story in Exodus? Here's the, here's the situation. The Israelites are murmuring. Murmuring doesn't mean, oh yeah, I'm going to say this. That's not what murmur means. Murmur is a rebellion. Is setting your face against someone. That's when you murmur. So it's not the soft thing that we think it is. Well, they're just murmuring. You know, they're talking politely so they don't bother somebody. No. They are setting themselves up against in their intention. And as a result, God gets pretty upset with them and he sends serpents among them and a bunch of them dies. A bunch of them die because of the serpents biting them. So they cry out to Moses and Moses intercede before them, before the Lord for them. Incidentally, if somebody asks you, why do you have to go to a priest? Why do you invoke Mary? Why, do you, why don't you just pray to God directly? Point them to the book of Exodus and show them how the Israelites had to constantly rely on Moses' intercession. That would help them. Be it as it may, Moses intercedes and God comes up with a really strange idea. He says, make a serpent of bronze. A serpent of bronze. And put it on a wood and lift it up. And whosoever looks at it will be healed. And Moses, diligently, doesn't ask questions. He doesn't set up a committee to decide whether what God is suggesting is good or not. Doesn't analyze it. Does what he's told. He makes a serpent of bronze, lifts it up, and whoever looked at it is healed. That's the literal meaning. That's what, exact, that's what happened. By the way, this is where the medical symbol comes from. You know, the medical symbol where you have a you know, serpent intertwined? It's the representation of Jesus Christ as the healer. The serpent of bronze. Okay? Sometimes doctors forget that. Especially these days. But I'm going to refrain from going down that path. It take us way too far. So... That's a literal meaning. But Jesus Christ himself apply a spiritual meaning to it. Allegorically. What is he saying? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, whomever, when I'm lifted up, I'll, 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 I'll gather all people to myself. So now, you look at that, and you go back and you look at that serpent of bronze business, and you think about, okay, what, what is God doing? Well, okay, number one, he makes a serpent. Now, the serpent is what? Who's the serpent? Satan. So what's up with God making a serpent? He makes a serpent, but it's of bronze. What does that mean? It means that that serpent has a different nature than the, your regular run-of-the-mill serpent. 
is made of bronze. So it is someone who looks like a serpent, but is not a serpent. Hmm? Isaiah chapter 53, in that prophecy of Jesus Christ, it is stated that God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. St. Paul says it too. He made him carry our sins, although he was sinless. So Jesus Christ looked like what? Like a serpent. But he wasn't one, because his nature was divine. And when he was lifted up on the cross, he attracted all to himself. That's the allegorical meaning of the text. That meaning was hidden, was hidden in what happened in Exodus. You understand? So it is God who plans in Scripture, in the events of His people, signs pointing out to what is going to happen so that when He shows up, they'll be able to recognize Him. God knew beforehand that one day He will be put on the cross. One day I should make a case and show you that Unlike what most people think, it isn't God the Father who's constantly talking with everybody in the Old Testament and God the Son kind of sitting on the wayside waiting for His turn. St. Paul says that everything was created for Him and through Him and by Him. The second person of the, the Most Holy Trinity was, is active throughout history. And I would make a case that Moses spoke to Him, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, the Lord at the burning bush. So the Lord Himself knew what was going to happen, and planted that back then with the hidden meaning so that it would be revealed later on. That's how Scripture works. That's how Scripture is all united together. That the, is the allegorical meaning, the meaning according to Christ. Okay, so, three meanings so far. Are you still with me? The literal meaning? Make a serpent of bronze and lift it up. That's the literal meaning. Okay, make a serpent of bronze and that's what happened. The moral sense in our own lives today. God, Christ, is commanding us to make a serpent of bronze and to lift it up. Who's that serpent of bronze that we have to lift up? Ourselves. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's the moral sense. That's the calling. The allegorical sense, I just showed it to you. Jesus Christ. The fourth sense the anagogical sense. It's quite a mouthful. Anagogical sense. Which means leading to, or indicating, leading to. Simply put, it is the sense that applies to the church and to the end times. The church and the end times. It's called the anagogical sense. We can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. So the anagogical sense helps us to see things as they will be in heaven. All right? As they will be in heaven. Let's go back to the crossing of the sea of the Red Sea. By analogy, by, I'm sorry, the, uh, by anago the anagogical sense of the crossing of the sea would be the following. Number one, the sea as its parting is the church. The church gives us birth and the church baptizes us and the church leads us to our home in heaven. You see that? The church conquers evil. Likewise, the same meaning can be applied to Mary. It is Mary who gives us birth, because she who gave birth to the head must give birth to the body. For if Christ is the head of the church, and we are the body of Christ, then the one who gave birth to the head must naturally give birth to the body. Each and every one of us 
is, in that sense, born again, yes, but from Mary. So if somebody asks you, are you born again, all you have to say is, yes, I'm born again from Mary. Okay? That's all you have to say. Let them think about it. Mary is also the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And just like the sea who drowned Pharaoh, Mary is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. You see how this applies? You see how now I've given you four senses of the same passage. They all combine together to form an icon. Scripture is like that. Your job is to train your mind to be quick enough to be able to jump through all four meanings. So when you're contemplating a word of scripture, you're looking at it in all four dimensions. And just as when you learn how to drive, I learned how to drive when I was 30 years old. I'm a city boy, lived in the city all my life, never needed a car. Until my mother-in-law said, well, what will happen when you have to drive your wife to the hospital? Are you going to take a bike? And, as is often the case, my mother-in-law was right. I had to learn how to drive. So I went to um, a driving school, and I was sitting there being a patriarch among all these youngsters, and an instructor said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be driving down a road in some neighborhood. You're going to be looking at a view, looking in the mirror, looking at the sidewalk, seeing if there's any kid coming through. You're going to look at the wheels of the cars to see if they're turning. You're going to see if any car is blinking. And you're going to be driving. I was panic-stricken. You want me to do all these things? I, I can't do all these things. She said, oh, don't worry about it. You'll, you'll, you'll just get a hang of it. She was right. The four senses work in the same way. You work at it, and eventually, you look at a passage... And without talking, without speaking, you see the senses. You see it. You move from one to the other. You know why this is necessary? I'll tell you why. Because in the Gospels, oftentimes, the Lord will move from one to the other seamlessly in the same passage. Think about it. The Lord knew the four senses. Hence, when he spoke of the Old Testament, he would use it in the four ways. And oftentimes, seamlessly. And they followed him because they studied scripture. They knew it. They knew how to read it. We have to recover that. We lost it. Here's how the four senses were taught in the Middle Ages. Saint, Saint Anselm. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right. Because I have the French pronunciation. A-N-S-E-L-M. The, it's called the Catholic Quadriga, or the Catholic Wheel. Picture, if you will, in the middle of the pages, the temple. Temple. Building. Temple. Temple of Jerusalem. You're with me? The literal sense of the temple is written underneath it. What is that? That's the temple of Jerusalem. That's the building that Herod built. Fair enough? Very good. According to the allegorical sense, the sense that applies to Christ, what is the temple? It is Christ himself. How do we know that? Remember in John? Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they said, huh, it took 45 years to build this temple, you're going to rebuild it in three days? And John adds, they didn't understand for he was speaking of his own body. What mistake did they do? They thought he was speaking at the literal level, whereas he was speaking at the anagogical level. Allegorical level, I'm sorry. Right? So that's the sense that applies to Christ. The temple, therefore, is a representation. It's the sacrament of Jesus Christ. It points to Christ. That's the allegorical sense. The anagogical sense, the sense of the end. What is the temple? It's the church. The temple represents the church. It points to the church. For it's a place of worship. Okay? And what is the moral sense of the temple? It's us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? And by the way, when St. Paul said that, he was not an American. 
Keep that in mind. He didn't mean each one of us is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a common American mistake. Because we're so taken by individuality. He meant collectively we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. As a family. You understand? Okay. It's very important. Because otherwise we're walking around thinking, huh, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. What do I need to go to the church and listen to the priest? I got everything I need. Okay? But that's the moral sense. You see the four senses? Literal, it's a temple that Herod built. By analogy, it is the Lord himself, his body. By allegory, I'm sorry. Yeah, allegorically, is the, it's Christ. Anagogically, it is the church. And morally, it is us. Now, what happened to the temple in 70 AD? The Roman army destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Remember that. What happened to Christ on the cross? What happened to that temple? That destroyed, right? What will happen to the earthly church at the end of times? The building, you know, the Vatican and all that. Right? What happens to us when we die? What happens to our body? Destroyed. Follow me? What happened to Christ three days later? He was in glory, right? What happened to the Jewish temple? It was transfigured, transformed into the church, right? So it rose in glory. What happens to the church at the end of times? It will shine in all of her glory. And what happens to us if we die in Christ? Rise in glory. The four senses of Scripture. See that? See how they all combine in harmony to form a whole that it is that gives you the full meaning. When we hit the book of Revelation, this, this technique, this understanding of the four senses is going to prove absolutely invaluable for us to properly understand it. Because you see, here's the complication that we have to face when we hit the book of Revelation. We're going to take a sentence and we're going to look at it literally and we're going to see that it's actually built on an allegorical sense referring to Christ. And that sense itself is built on anagogical sense, which is also built on another literal sense. Let me give you an example. I gave that last time, but I, it, it's good to give it again because this is one that in, interests people. I'll give this one example and then I'll close. The famous dreaded number. You know what I'm talking about, right? The famous number in Revelation. 666. Okay. You can, make, you can get this number to say anything you want. People have applied it to the Pope. So the Protestants applied it to the Pope. The Catholic applied it to Luther. It didn't apply to Stalin, to Hitler, to whomever you want. And there may be some, in some cases, there may be some application, I suppose. But let me ask you the simple question. Let's go to the literal sense. Do you really think that when St. John was writing that, he was thinking about the United States versus... Communist Russia? Is that what it was in his mind? No. Right? So we got to go back to what he meant. In his context. Well, what do we know? Well, we know for a fact that the Hebrew language, just as the Roman language, did not have separate symbols to represent numbers, as we have in English where we use the Arabic numerals. And the funny thing is that the Arabs actually use the Persian numerals. Couldn't really figure out why, but that's how it is. You know, the one, the two, and the three, these are called Arabic numerals. And they're not the same in Arabic. Okay. So, every word, therefore, has a number, a value. And if you're trained into this, you can just look at the numbers and derive numbers. I mean, look at the words and derive numbers. Easy enough. Okay? And in fact, there's a whole school today called the Kabbalah that specializes in this. The, the, the writing secret meaning out of scripture. 
In fact, if, you're, if you've heard of this, the people who run these uh, programs on scripture to find prophecies of, uh, you know, the hanging chad and, and, and all the events that we live through, well, people need to use the reason because you can do the same thing with, uh, with the New York Times and you'll find pretty much the same thing. Just a matter of statistics. Okay? That's not the intent here. The intent is that words had value. So, and St. John tells us 666 is a human number. Human number. And he adds, this requires wisdom. So you look back at the context during his time and you see that if you take the name Kaisar Neron, which is the official name for Nero, Kaisar Neron, and you add the value of the letters in Hebrew, what number do you get? 666. So, there is a strong indication that there was Nero. Why? Because in certain manuscript of Revelation, the number is not 666, it's 616. And when you look, you see the copyist didn't take Kaiser Neron, he took Kaiser Nero, drop the N. Total that, you get 616. To me, that's one of the strongest corroboration we have that that is Nero. It doesn't apply to any other name from the time when this was written. Okay, well, great. But isn't it a little bit anticlimactic? I mean, okay, it's Kaiser Nero, but why is he using 666 and indicate Kaiser Nero? Well, it's a ploy. He's hiding the name. And that, that, that is true, because he's writing in dangerous times. But then, but then why 666? What's up with that? Well, so right now, we just look at the literal meaning. 666, Kaiser Nero, fits the context. Kind of makes sense. Then, you've got to use the anagogical meaning. In order to do that, you have to ask yourself a simple question. Where does 666 appear the first time in Scripture? People are un, un, under the impression that 666 is the, is the, is, is, appears just in John, just spurts out. It doesn't. Well, one place where it appears, and it's very important, is in relationship to wisdom. Because he says, John says, this calls for wisdom. Remember who was called wisdom? Who had wisdom? Solomon. Huh. Go back and you read about Solomon. And you notice that Solomon started being a really good guy. He was therefore a, a, an example of Christ. He was a symbol of Christ, a type of Christ. Then we know he switched over. He went to the dark side. Right? And what did he do? He basically violated three laws of the king that were set forth to him in Scripture. You will not amass taxes. You will not amass horses. You will not amass wives. The usual money, sex, and power. They were put to guard the king from personal ambition. So Solomon went through and violated the first law, taxes. And he amassed a bunch of shekels of gold. A bunch of big bags of gold. Guess how many? 666. So, John goes to Nero and uses Nero as a symbol and a pointer to Solomon. Implicit in that pointer is the law that God gave and the covenant. We're going to talk about the covenant. And he reminds everyone of that 666. So now we have to ask ourselves the question, why 6? Why not 555? What's up with 6? Now, we have to jump even backward to Genesis. When was man created? On which day? The sixth day. Hmm? Along with the beasts, the animals. Animals and men were created on the sixth day of creation, and God rested on the seventh. Why did he rest on the seventh? Because seven is the number of perfection. Why is it seven is the number of perfection? Because God created the world in seven days. But why is God created the world in seven days? Because seven is the number of perfection. Why is seven the number of perfection? Because God created the world in seven days. We're missing the context, right? 
Seven is the number of perfection because in Hebrew, if you were to establish a covenant, you say, I would seven myself. Literally. That's how you say, I'm making a covenant. I seven myself. That's why God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Because he was actually making a covenant with his creature, taking that creature and making that creature into his own son. That's why seven. Six, therefore, is the number of what? Six is the number of the beast. Because on the sixth day, the beast was created and the beast reached perfection. And so, oh, by the way, if you had a dog or a cat, let me clarify something if you had any doubt about this. When a dog or a cat dies, the soul dies with it. Don't go to heaven. Animals have a natural soul, not supernatural. It isn't eternal. When the body dies, so dies the soul. Now, if that saddens you, I'll put it to you this way. If when you're in heaven, you need that cat to be around, God will make it for you, right? If you need that cat to be happy, God will take care of you. All right. So, what was I? Six. So six is the number of perfection for the beast because on the sixth day it was created as it should have been. But not man. Man was created on the sixth day for the seventh day. For the day of the covenant. You understand? So what is the number of perfection for man? Seven. What is the number of regression for man? Six. You're with me so far? Now, here's another thing we need to learn from the, from the Hebrew language. In Hebrew, if you want to say bigger, bigger, there's no word for bigger. The only way you can say bigger is by saying big, big. You repeat it. If you want to say biggest, say three times. Big, big, big. Now, there's one expression you're very well aware of, right? We sing it right before the right? holy, holy, holy. Three times. Why? God is the holiest. Notice, Scripture never says God is mercy, mercy, mercy. God is love, love, love. Would like it if Scripture said that. Doesn't. Holy. Holy, holy. God is absolute holiness. And it's only when we understand or we appreciate His holiness that we really have a depreciation for His mercy. Okay? So please, don't turn Jesus Christ into this kind of a buddy-buddy God who scratches where you itch. Because you're going to have a surprise. Christ is before all all holy. Holy, holy, holy. You understand? So, if I say six about a man, what am I saying? He's in trouble. If I say six, six, he's in big trouble. If I say six, 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 game over. Get it? That's what's in six, six, six. He's basically saying to us in that number, Kaiser Nero, who is a pagan king, right? the pagan force of Rome, allies itself with, uh, with Israel, Solomon, and together they're banding against Christ. And 666 is the number of the fall of man. That's what's behind that word. And there's more behind it. But that's just... One way that we have to go through and understand Scripture. If I have to do it for every one of those verses, you'd be dizzy. That's why we're building it from the bottom up. So what I've done today is outline for you the four senses of Scripture. The literal, which is the foundation of everything. Allow me a quote from, Saint, from Pope Pius XII. In his encyclical, Divino Aflante Spiritu, he points out to interpreters of the sacred book, books that, and I quote, their foremost and greatest endeavor should be to discern 
and define clearly that sense of the biblical words which is called literal. It is necessary to determine first, end of quote, it is necessary to determine first what the sacred text really says before one can come to understand what the sacred text really means. If somebody's speaking to you in Chinese, you better be able to understand Chinese before you can figure out what he's telling you. That's what, this, that's what literal sense means. And we, in the book of Revelation, will be focusing a lot on that sense. I'm not going to be able to cover all four senses throughout the, stu the study. There's no way. Or else we'll be here until my hair is completely gray. That's the literal sense. On top of that, we have the three spiritual senses. First one is the allegorical sense, the sense that points to Jesus Christ. The second is the anagogical sense, the sense that points to the end, to the church. And the third is the moral sense. Four senses. I would recommend, before next week, that you get the Catechism Catholic Church. If you don't have it, you can go online and Google it. It's there. Look at paragraph 101 through 115. Read them, reread them, read them again. And start thinking in terms of the four senses. And next week, we'll take the literal sense and we'll run with it. I'm going to go through a number of passages that are difficult in Scripture and help you understand them in the literal sense, give you a taste of what we're going to do in the book of Revelation. And for the two other lectures, we'll touch upon the two other senses. And then once we've done that, we're going to hit the covenant, which is critical for our understanding of the book of Revelation. What we're going to do now is we're going to close with a word of prayer. Those of you who need to leave, may God be with you and thank you for coming. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.